Remain standing now as I read this morning's scripture from John chapter 20. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside, and he also noticed the linen wrappings lying there. While the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciples who had reached the tomb, uh, when the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. He saw and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she she stooped and looked in. And she saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her, because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabbani, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't, I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. And then she gave them his message. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Our kids can be dismissed. There's programming down the hall for them. And uh, to the rest of you, thank you so much for being here at the 11 o'clock service at Community Christian Church. To those who are joining online, we're glad that you are joining in online as well. I need you to put your Easter hat on today because that's where we are in the week of VBS lessons. And so with your Easter hat on, If I say, he is risen, you say, yes, you got it. A few of Easter people that are clued into Easter out there, he is risen indeed. That statement is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. If you take that statement away, he is risen, he is risen indeed, there's really nothing at all left. Jesus may have taught some really cool things, he may have had some really cool principles for life, but if the resurrection didn't happen, then even following those good things that Jesus taught is really questionable for us to do. The Apostle Paul said it this way, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Hear that, your faith, useless. All of this that we do Every week, all of this that we try to get done in our community, all of this that we gather together because we believe if Jesus 
was not resurrected. It's a waste. It's a waste of our time, our energy, our lives, if Jesus isn't alive. So we are in the middle of a VBS series. We're taking the five lessons that our kids will learn the week of VBS, and we're kind of pulling them out five weeks ahead of time and uh, dealing with them from an adult perspective. And so we started with um, the wave maker. Our theme, by the way, is make waves, all right? So we talk about creation, the wave maker. Last week, we talked about catch the wave and Jesus walking on the water and his invitation to us to get out of the boat. Next week, we'll talk about making a splash and how we love one another well. And then last, we'll, we'll conclude with the ripple effect. We'll talk about uh, the fruit of the Spirit in our life. But today is Jesus is the life saver. Jesus is alive. That's the simple VBS lesson. And the text is all of the end of the Gospel of John. It's chapter 18 and 19 and 20 and 21. And I'm not sure how our teachers are going to cover that, uh, but uh, it covers Jesus's trial and crucifixion and burial and resurrection. And and then his appearances uh, to his friends that he makes in order to prove to them that he's very much alive. And so let's just talk about this today. Um, in John chapter 20, in that text we just read, why do we believe? Why do, on earth, why on earth do we believe that some Middle Eastern guy walked out of a tomb on Sunday morning after he had been crucified by the Romans on Friday afternoon? Why do we believe that? Are, are we wasting our lives with this idea? And the text that we just read is from John chapter 20. It starts out this way, that we are told there's a woman named Mary at the tomb of Jesus early on Sunday morning. And when she arrives at the tomb, the first thing she saw was that the stone that was used to seal up the tomb where they buried Jesus has been moved. And so she instantly thinks that's not right. And she goes and she gets another disciple or two. She grabs Peter and what the text says is the other disciple who is most surely John himself. It's John that is writing this passage. And she frantically tells them that Jesus's body is gone and it must have been taken somewhere because it's not in the tomb. And so come to the tomb and help me figure out where they've taken him. And so John and Peter take off for the tomb as fast as they can. Apparently John is a faster runner than Peter. He gets there first and he looks into the tomb, but he does not go in. And then Peter gets there and like Peter always does, in true Peter fashion, he just dives right into the tomb without even thinking, and the text says they both saw something. What was it? Look at verse 5. It says, John, looking from the outside in, saw that the linen clothes were lying there. It's the same linen that has been wrapped around Jesus' body when they put him in the tomb and buried him. Look at verse 6. Peter went inside and he saw the same thing. He saw the linen cloths that were lying there. And then in verse 7, we get this added detail that Peter is inside and he sees that the face cloth that would have been covering the, the face and the head of Jesus was folded up and it was lying separate from the other cloths. Now, time, time out before we go any further. Let's just acknowledge what a disaster this is. I want you to think about it from Mary's view and from John's and from Peter's, the man that they have been following, the man that they've 
given their lives to here has been beaten. He's been crucified on a cross. They watched that happen on Friday, and they, they largely ran for their lives too, fearing that they might be killed as well. That was a likely scenario, right? They, they got Jesus. They're probably going to come after us. And so now on Sunday, after they've buried the body, the, the body is not even the tomb where they buried him. Somebody took him. Is it enemies? Are these enemies of Jesus? I mean, if, if so, haven't they rubbed it in enough? I mean, this is just another twist of the knife, right? After we've been stabbed in the heart. And so we, we left families for this man. We left our occupations. We thought he would change the world. And now he's gotten cut down before he could finish his mission. And so the mission is over. All of that effort is lost. All of that devotion that we poured into this man is lost. All of that time that we gave to this endeavor is lost. And on top of all of that, somebody steals the body. What cruelty. And that first impulse of being cheated, maybe, gets quickly overcome by rational thought. You can see the clarity kind of flood into their minds by the word that John uses. In our English text, we get several instances where John writes the word saw or see or seen. The first is in verse 5. It's the, the normal word for see. The word is blepo. John observed. He saw the grave clothes. That's what it means. His, with his eyes, he registered in the tomb that the grave clothes were there and they were ordered in a certain way. He saw. That's blepo. And then in verse 6, Peter comes in and he also saw the grave clothes. But John doesn't use blepo this time. He uses a different word. The word is theoreo. Do you recognize an English word from that word? Of course you do. Theory, right? The word means to ponder, to reason, to, to theorize, to think it through. And so what is Peter doing? He's thinking through what he sees in front of him. He's deducing what it could mean. And he's using the same kind of reasoning process that a scientist might use to explain some theory or something that he's seen in the world. That's theoreo. And what are they looking at? What are they theoreoing um, first? They saw the grave clothes that were lying there. And it's a word that means that they were arranged in an orderly way. These clothes had not been torn to shreds. They weren't in an unraveled uh, heap. They, they, they saw the head cloth was not thrown aside uh, or on a, in a pile by itself, but it was lying there, same word, in an orderly way in another place, neatly folded alongside the grave clothes. Now, why do these details matter? It's because I've never been to a funeral, and I don't think you have either, where if the deceased was in a casket, they weren't wearing normal clothes that they would have worn in life. We, we put on our dead bodies suits and, you know, track suits or, or overalls or whatever would be normal to wear. We, we put clothes on them. But dead bodies in these days are not dressed in street clothes. 
Instead, they are wrapped tightly with long strips of cloth, and uh, after they were finished wrapping a body, we might say, oh, that looks like a mummy. That's exactly what it would have been like. And that's why when Lazarus is resuscitated by Jesus, and Jesus says, Lazarus, come out of the tomb, he also says, take the grave clothes off and let him go, because there's no way Lazarus is getting out of that mummified condition by himself or without help. And that's why John and Peter look in, and what they see makes absolutely no sense to them. What in the world is the explanation for the grave clothes to be lying here neatly folded? A few things. Number one, if enemies had come in and stolen the body, why would they remove the grave clothes at all? Why would they take the time to do that? The body would have already been to begun to decay. It would have been a mess. They wouldn't have done that. That doesn't make sense. Number two, it may be friends of Jesus came in and took his body somewhere. Why would they have shown such disrespect by disrobing him and carrying him out naked? That doesn't add up either. Number three, if Jesus somehow revived himself in the tomb, then surely the grave clothes would have been ripped and shredded as he struggled to get out of them, but they're not. And that's assuming that a seriously wounded, barely alive man could find the strength to take his own money, mummy wraps off at all. And even if he managed that, why would he have neatly folded them up? And so you can see in their minds, they're theorizing, right? Right? Slowly but surely, every normal explanation for what had happened was being eliminated. Now, the third time that John uses this word saw is in verse 8, and it's about himself. John goes into the tomb, and the text says that he saw, and yet it's still a different Greek word than even the other two for the word saw. This time, the word means to realize. And so he looked in, he saw the clothes, he theorized about the clothes, and then he put the pieces together and he realized what had happened. He realized this wasn't anything done by human beings. It couldn't have been. Something extraordinary and supernatural was going on. Only God could pull off what they were seeing in the clothes and just the way they were laid out. And John writes, it was then and there that he believed. He has every evidence to trust that Jesus has not been taken, but that Jesus has walked out of the tomb on his own. He's alive. And so John, the thinker, becomes the very first person to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. He opened himself up to the evidence just, just by what he saw in the clothes, just the way they were laid there, and he worked it out rationally in his mind, and what, once he got the conclusion, he was willing to base his life on it. There's a true story about uh, the famous tightrope walker Blondin that gets uh, used a lot. And if you haven't heard it, Blondin is a guy, it's a true, true, true story, who stretched a tightrope over the Niagara uh, River near the falls. And every day he would go out and he would show his skills uh, walking across the tightrope and back. And he would thrill crowds that came out to watch him. He would do things that were crazy. He would go into the middle of the tightrope and with a table and a chair and he would actually eat his lunch in the middle of the tightrope. He would um, ride a bicycle 
over and back on the tightrope. And then he had a wheelbarrow that he would push back and forth on the tightrope. This is a picture of the actual wheelbarrow that he used. One day he, um, he, he said to the crowd, he said, you've seen me take this wheelbarrow back and forth on the rope. What do you think? Do you think I could do the same if I put 200 pounds of weights in the wheelbarrow and all the crowd that was gathered, yeah, yeah, okay. And then he said, who of you will be the 200 pound weight? Silence, (laughs) right? They believed the fact of what he could do, but they were unwilling to trust him with their lives. That's the difference here. John reasoned his way into a rational belief that Jesus has risen from the dead, but then, as it were, he gets into the wheelbarrow. He trusts Jesus. He believes that deeply. That's what the word is. He trusts Jesus with his life. And it's worth note for us that John came to this genuine, saving, get-in-the-wheelbarrow kind of faith without ever actually having seen Jesus alive. He believed without ever having seen a risen Jesus. That's not the case with the other disciples. Most of them require actual, literal sight of Jesus before they believe. But John's experience tells us that this kind of transforming faith and trust in a risen Lord can come without even seeing Jesus risen in the flesh. And man, is that good news for you and me, because I've never seen Jesus risen in the flesh. You haven't either, I would suspect. And so John is model for us. He blepos, he sees, he reasons, he theoreos, and then he realizes, he comes to know Aden, and he sees in these three ways, and it brings him to belief without ever having seen the body of the risen Jesus. And if he can come to that kind of get in the wheelbarrow kind of belief, then so can we. What John saw then, we can see today that Jesus is alive. The resurrection has rationality to it. There are lots of reasons that we can trust that Jesus walked out of the tomb. And that that resonates with a subset of us in the room. But at the very same time, the resurrection is personal. It's personal. And the personal uh, nature of the resurrection makes everything in life matter. If we were forced to remain in in the rational realm, then this could just be like a sterile science project, like mix this liquid with this liquid and watch the reaction and make notes for the test and what's for lunch, right? But it's not just rational. That's not where this ends. There are rational reasons to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but it's the personal nature of the resurrection that makes a difference to us and how we live our life today. So go to verse 11. We're going to walk through the personal nature of what happens. Mary stays at the tomb after Peter and John have left, and she's weeping. Now, that's understandable. If you put her yourself in her shoes for a moment, if the cross wasn't enough pain and anguish to have to watch, now his enemies have taken the body. That's what she thinks. And so now she can't even mourn properly. That's why she there, she's there in the first place. Jesus was the one person in the world who gave hope to Mary. Literally, he gave her a new lease on life. We read in other scriptures that we know that he delivered her from seven 
demons. I mean, think about what a wreck she was before Jesus did that. Her life finally made sense because Jesus relieved her of all of that anguish. And now he's dead. And his body's gone. And she is lost. She is weeping. And it's pretty easy for us to come alongside Mary with any number of things that might happen to us in life that get taken from us. There are things that we put our trust in. There are things that we begin to hope in. There are things that we, that we, we just have, we put so much weight, we give so much weight to them in our lives. And then for one reason or another, they're gone and Jesus seems absent and we don't know what to do either. And so it makes sense that, Je- that Mary's weeping. We can see that because we do ourselves. In verse 12, Mary gets the courage to look into the tomb and she gets a surprise. When she looks into the tomb, two angels are there. Now, where did they come from? John and Peter didn't see any angels. They weren't there before. One commentator put it this way, Mary is weeping and maybe... Well, maybe you only see angels through tears. That's an interesting thought. When angels show up in the Bible, they usually tell people not to be afraid, or they ask, what's wrong? Those are the two lines that they are given in their angel manual. And so here, right on cue, they deliver their scripted lines. What's wrong? And Mary answers very honestly, they've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they've laid him. I want you to keep yourself in her shoes, her very foundation, her security, her heart, her purpose. It's all been taken from her in the death of Jesus. And maybe you have some things today that you came in here and and you know that they've been taken away from you too. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's home. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's kids or friends. Or maybe it's my rights or my dignity or my health or my hopes have been taken from me. And in Mary's grief, we can see our own. And it's in that grief that she sees a figure. And she assumes a little bit, and she guesses who this figure is. She thinks it must be a gardener, probably minding the burial grounds. Maybe this gardener has taken Jesus' body or at least seen what happened. And so she addresses him. She says, look, We're at our wit's end here. We don't know what has happened. If you know anything, if you have moved his body, would you just tell me where he is? You're the gardener here in charge, right? I mean, you you don't have to lift a finger even. I will go and get the body and bring it back where it's supposed to be. Just tell me where it is. And on one level, Mary is so wrong because we know, right? This isn't the gardener she's talking to. It's not some random guy with hedge clippers. This is Jesus that she's talking to. We know it's Jesus. She doesn't. And yet, on another level, Mary couldn't be more right. This is the gardener. Jesus is the gardener. And what's happening at this very moment is the beginning of a new creation. Jesus is cultivating the perfectly pruned and manicured life to come. He's 
ushering it in by walking out of a tomb. Here's the new man, the new Adam who has taken care of all of our sin and has been charged with bringing the broken and chaotic world back into order, back into flower, and back into fruitfulness. He is the gardener who comes to uproot the thorns and the thistles in your life and replace them with blooms and harvests. And that's the that's one of the most amazing things that I can say about the resurrection and what it means for us today. It means that whatever sin has taken from you, whatever sin has destroyed in your life, whatever sin has broken in your life, the resurrection means that it will all be made right because we have the gardener who has come to us to give it back. And he's giving it back, whatever it was that was taken from you, he's giving it back in full and even better than it was before. Jesus the gardener simply says, Mary. 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 Now, what would you say if someone close to you did not recognize you? I, I bet you, I know what you would say, it's was, was what I would say, it would be something like, hey, it's me. It's Dusty. I, I know I have a beard. You didn't have, I didn't have that last time you saw, I saw me, but it's me. It's me. Why doesn't Jesus do that here? My clothes. My clothes are new. They're blinding, but it's me, Mary. I promise. It's me. It's Jesus. He does not say this because it was personal, and you can see it. The, the angels just call her woman when they address her. Woman, why are you weeping? They don't have a relationship with Mary, and even Jesus himself calls her woman and she mistakes him for the gardener when he does. It's not until he uses the most beautiful word in all of language to her, her name, Mary, that she recognizes that Jesus is in front of her. All he has to do is use that word, Mary, and then she sees. In fact, she'll run to the disciples, and she will say, I've seen the Lord. And yet again, John does it again. He uses a word for seen that is different from all of the other times that someone sees. And this word means to experience. And so Mary gets to run back to the disciples after experiencing Jesus in the garden. And she gets to say, I've seen Jesus. I've experienced him. He's called my name. The resurrection is rational, but there, there are reasons to believe. But more impactful to us today is that this idea that the resurrection is intensely personal. There are lots more signs even in this text and even in this chapter that, that Jesus is risen not just for everybody. He's risen for you. He's risen for me. In verse 17, Jesus tells Mary to go and tell the others that he's alive, and look at what he calls them. Always before, uh, they've been labeled followers or disciples or friends. What does Jesus call them now? Brothers. Brothers. He says, God, my Father, but he's also quick to say, your Father. And so the message that Jesus is trying to send is that God is my God, but because of what I've done, God is also equally your God. We are siblings. You're my brother. You're my sister. 
and we get to experience and know God in the same way that Jesus does. That's astounding. We get to be sons and daughters of God, just like Jesus is the Son of God. And everything that is true of Jesus is now true of us because we are kids in God's family, and our Father is good, and our Father happens to be God, the creator of everything himself. And how do I know that's true? Because Jesus is alive. What we're really after in this life is meaning, and we attempt to find it through work or having a family or becoming a certain kind of person, and those things are all great and they're noble pursuits. But what if life does what life always does and ends? And what if when it ends, there's nothing more to it? What if we just rot in the ground like an old tree stump and, and we're no more? What, what if... Uh, in, the, in this world, years from now, if people uh, are right and this world heats up until it boils and life is no longer possible here so that there's nothing, if that happens and there's nothing else, then what then? What will that mean for our careers that are so pressing right now, our loves that are so pressing right now, our, our families, our friendships? All of those things are so important to us right now, right today. What about those things that we're chasing after, those projects that we're so deeply into right now? What will they mean? Nothing. Election winners and losers, doesn't matter. World Series winners and losers, it doesn't matter. The fact that you made vice president or partner or that you were in love with somebody or if this, if this world burns up and that's all there, that there is, none of that matters. It will make no difference at all if if all we do in this life comes to nothing, then it's like restoring a Corvette just to roll it over a cliff. It's like painting a masterpiece just to throw it on a fire. If Jesus isn't alive, then any good we manage in this life is wasted energy. But if the resurrection is true, if God really did raise Jesus from the dead as reported in John chapter 20. And if we can believe that because we have reasons to, and if we can believe that because we have a personal experience of Jesus, the risen Christ, then we get to take hope in a God who says, I will also make a new heaven and a new earth. I will renew this life. I will restore it to what it was originally intended to be. I will take everything that sin took from you, and I will remake it till it's better, and I will give it back to you. And all of a sudden, if all of that's true, then everything in life that you do matters. If the resurrection actually happened and God will one day renew this earth, then every prayer that you pray, every act of love, every kindness, every minute that you use teaching a kid in VBS, every moment that you sit with some lonely elderly person, every work of art, every piece of music that is inspired by your love of God, every act of care for another person will somehow find its way into the new creation that God is bringing about. The smallest acts of kindness now become infinite because Jesus is alive. If the resurrection is true, there's no waste of time, there's no waste of life here, and life isn't a scam at all. And that's the VBS lesson. It's pretty simple. Jesus is alive. 
There is no rug pull to the gospel. Jesus gave his life for you. Your sin and death was heaped on him at the cross. His reward for living life perfectly was that your imperfect life was transferred to him. And so he got death and you get life. And we have that hope because of the assurance of the resurrection, because he walked out of the tomb and he's alive. And now he's calling your name. Will you see him and believe? Will you recognize who is in front of you, Jesus, the risen Lord? Will you see and experience the one who calls you by name? Will you in faith trust your life to him and get in the wheelbarrow and live? To be a lifesaver, you have to have life. And Jesus is alive with more life than we've ever known. Would you let him be your lifesaver today? God, we thank you for the hope that we have because Jesus walked out of the tomb. And we thank you that it makes a difference today. That all of the good things that we've put our hands to will not be wasted at all. But they will echo, they will ripple into eternity. We thank you that Jesus is our life saver. Would you help us to reach out and take a hold of him today? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.